Church, let's rejoice in that this morning. God, we thank you when our fears seem to take over your truth in our minds or in our experiences or in our circumstances, that your truth cuts through that. And it speaks directly to the heart of our fears. It speaks directly to the heart of our insecurities. It speaks directly to the shaky foundations we may be building on, calling us back from those to build on you, the way, the truth, the life. God, hold us fast even today as we look to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, church. Welcome. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Metro Life Church. And our passage today is Daniel 2, but I just want to take a brief moment to say thank you to those who have written this week in response to last Sunday's sermon. And if you haven't heard that yet, it's available for you online. But uh, one of the things that we talked about last week were some of the different seasons of life that we see happening through the church. So there are a number of stages of life represented through the church, and I think that that's beautiful. And I specifically spoke to what I lovingly refer to as the founding generation of our church. So that would be primarily those who are in either pre-retirement years, so children have moved out of the house, yet there's not yet the freedom of kind of retirement should you be financially prepared for that. Or those who are getting to the all the way through life stages to, to that place where those who are getting to the point of Retirement has come, and the freedoms that come with retirement due to health reasons or whatever else have now been gone, kind of gone back to being restricted. And I asked those who, I don't even know how to respond to that. I'm just going to keep going. It's like a weird amen kind of out of nowhere. Um, so uh, we were speaking to that season of life, and I asked for you to email me, and thank you for those that did. As a matter of fact, one of the emails was, did you mean it? So my, my response was, bring it on. And, and I love that. But here's what I think it's highlighted for me. We have some work to do. We have some work to do as a church to serve you well. Now, this is not a call for us to ignore all the generations and just focus on this. That's... That's never how God's work or his church works. But I want you to know the phone calls that we've had over this over the last couple of weeks, the emails back and forth that we've had, the the meetings with a few of you that are to come. Well, they've been a delight first and foremost for me as a pastor in this church. But I want you to know this. We've added this to our agenda for our upcoming elders meeting in February. And the reason that I highlight that is uh, just to let you know, you are not, and this season of life is not a problem to be fixed. But it is a season for us to walk with you well through. So we have work to do. We have learning to do. And as elders, we're going to 
begin to think and pray about that? How do we come alongside? And so I, I just want you to know so that you know how to pray for us in even seeking to serve you. When we gather in those meetings, there's really kind of four guiding uh, items that drive our agenda. What, what are the things that equip the church? What are the things that build up the church? What are the things that bring unity to the church? And what are the things that train the church for the works in the season that they're called to, for the service in the season that they're called to. So you can be praying for us as we look at this season of life. It's not new. God's word speaks to it. But we're going to be working to grow in serving that season of life. I hope that's an encouragement to you. I hope that's also just a humble admission of our need for your prayers. Uh, and, And also just a heads up that we're going to be learning as we go but here's my commitment to you we are here to walk through that season with you however imperfectly we're not going anywhere we're not going to abandon walking through this season of life and so for all seasons of life we are here as a church to walk through those seasons of life with you thus ends the follow-up on last Sunday. Can we look to Daniel chapter 2 together? And here's, I just want to give you a basic outline. There's 49 verses, and if you're concerned, I am aware of the time. Uh, I'm aware of my propensity to kind of extend these messages out, so I'm going to try very hard not to do that today. But I think that there are some things that God wants to do in us through these 49 verses. Much of them are a narrative, so we're going to be kind of going along with a an account of something that happened as Daniel and his three friends are a part of the king's court. Uh, We were introduced to kind of these main characters last Sunday. We often know them as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We have Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who is one of the main players in all of this. And today, Daniel has graduated His friends have graduated from the university that they were in. They are now serving in the king's court. They are a part of the collective wisdom that kind of surrounds the king. And I think that we're going to see four main things that are going to lead to the main point of today. I think that we're going to see how God reveals his greatness in the midst of impossible situations. Perhaps you're facing an impossible situation today, and perhaps it's God who wants to reveal his greatness to you, not necessarily this overcoming in the midst of that circumstance. He just wants to reveal his greatness, but he does so in the midst of impossible situations. At least they seem impossible to us. That the prayers and praise of his people are a delight to God. What we were just doing in worship is something that brings joy to the heart of God. That the revelation of mysteries point to the power of God and His kingdom. And lastly, that God honors those who faithfully serve Him. And I believe this is going to help us understand this morning how God reveals His greatness and His coming kingdom so that all will praise and worship Him. So let's begin in Daniel chapter 2 in verse 1, and we're going to read along together through verse 16. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came and they stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit 
is troubled to know the dream. The Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn from limb to limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. This is a terrible game of relational poker, isn't it? He really just upped the ante, didn't he? But if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show you its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time. Because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any man, magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods, notice the lowercase g there, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. God reveals his greatness in the midst of impossible situations. Last week as we were introduced to Nebuchadnezzar, what is it that we know about him? He is a conquering king. His his kingdom is expanding. The, The geography that he oversees needs new skins for the maps. His kingdom is expansive and he's conquering every time he turns around. But his dreams are troubling him. The things that happen in the night, in the Phantom of the Opera. Some of you will recall this. The Phantom at one point sings that nighttime and darkness heightens each sensation. And of course, things that appear problematic in the daylight can become paralyzing in the darkness, can't they? So all of a sudden, it's not about Nebuchadnezzar anymore. All of a sudden, we all know exactly the feeling that Nebuchadnezzar is walking through. And I think that there's a reason for that today. As a matter of fact, I'm not normally a dreamer. I I can't typically remember my dreams the next morning. 
And based on the way the latter half of this week has gone, that's a gift to me. Because I've had some troubling dreams. We were actually talking about it this week in in our leaders meeting. And as we were talking about it, the, the question came up, do you remember your dreams? And I just said no. Even, even first thing in the morning, I can't necessarily recall anything that I, my understanding is that everybody dreams. I guess I'm just gifted to not remember them, but this week has been different. I'm kind of chalking it up to a combination of a few different things going on in life right now, but, but here are some of the types of things that I faced. I had a friend that I, I actually thought I had offended or hurt in some way. The dream was so real in that moment that I couldn't differentiate it from reality. And I actually talked to them just yesterday and said, have I I done something? They said, no. I said, thank God. Perhaps those are the types of dreams that you know. But I said I'm talking up to a few different things. I think it's this really weird mixture of exhaustion over the last few weeks and having recently seen... The Eternals and Encanto, (laughs) while reading Daniel 2. In terms of theological preparation, may I not recommend that combination of items? Because like one night I thought, the whole night I just wanted to talk about Bruno, and I knew that the answer, of course, was no, 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 no. I'm grateful for the ones that got that joke. See, I'm not normally a dreamer. But I'm grateful, too, that there are people who are dreamers in the church. As a matter of fact, Shane was sharing with us that he is praying for dreams for the church. I love that. I believe that there are people that are gifted to have dreams for the church. I think that's a spiritual gift. I think even the interpretation of dreams is a spiritual gift. Why do I think that? Because Scripture says so. I've not been asking for that one, I'll confess. It probably won't start today either, given how the week went. But we know what it's like to have troubling dreams. I hope this is a a bit of a funny illustration to show, but I think that there are dreams that we have. There are aspirations that we have. There are things that we seek to do that in the daytime trouble us, but in the nighttime they paralyze us. And God wants to speak today to that paralyzing moment in the darkness of our soul. He reveals his greatness in the midst of most impossible of situations. Don't miss the fact that Nebuchadnezzar's behavior and his uneasy dreams speak into our personal worlds. Our own insecurities, maybe even our own hostilities, those are not things that are exclusive to those who are in power or considered mighty by the world but here's here's the difference for those who are in jesus christ here's the difference for those who would be followers or those that we would say are believers that they can respond to those things differently when we have those paralyzing moments when we have those anxious moments we can respond differently because the gospel equips us to do so the kingdom that we're living for equips us to do so what is, what is Daniel's response? He doesn't, he doesn't give up in the midst of that moment. He doesn't just say, que sera, sera. He doesn't have this fatalistic view about life to just say, well, this must be the time I've been appointed to die. 
No, he responds in a shrewd and a winsome way. He has a wise and faith-filled response. And can I tell you that a wise and faith-filled response is always appropriate in the life of the believer. It's always appropriate. It's always the way that we should respond. And verse 14 specifically says that Daniel's response was prudent. And it was filled with discretion. And so we continue on in verse 17 through verse 23. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, his companions. Remember, these are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as many of us know them. And told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven, considering this mystery. He didn't seek answers. He sought mercy. Daniel's life was in danger. He needed rescue. He needed salvation. And so what does he seek? Mercy. So that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Verse 19 of Daniel 2. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision in the night, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. And the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might. And I have made known to and now have made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known the king's matter. This is where we see that the prayers and praise of his people are a delight to God. Daniel does two things in the midst of this circumstance, in the midst of his wise and prudent response to the king. He does two things that demonstrate not his dependence on his ability, not his dependence on this impossible outcome, not his dependence on anything but God and his gracious provision for him. He urges that God be sought for needed answers. Is that our first response? That we seek after God? Or do we just seek after solutions? Because there's a difference in those two things. We're going to see it more in just a moment. But Daniel urges that God be sought for needed answers. And secondly, he gives God credit, and he does it in two different ways. He does that in private, and he does that publicly. What does he give God credit for? For the revelation of the king's dream. Let's remember, Nebuchadnezzar hasn't told anybody what his dream was. That's the kind of impossible hurdle in the midst of this. What did the king dream to even know how to say an interpretation? By the way, these, these magicians, these, these Chaldeans, they must have been so good at coming up with flowery words and broad kind of accolades for the king that it might seem like any interpretation that they would have given would have acknowledged what the king wanted to hear. 
But the king in the midst of this moment withholds that piece of information. He says, tell me the dream that I know that your interpretation is correct. It's an impossible situation. But God, but God is given credit by Daniel in private and in public for revelation. So as a church, what should we learn from this? Well, going to God in prayer is always a part of a wise and prudent response. It's always a part of that. They're not separated out. This is where we realize that our spiritual life and the things that we walk through in this world are joined together. They're not kind of like in this bento box of our life where we just go, well, there's the hour and a half that we're Christians. But what difference does that make for the rest of the 166 hours of the week? No, they're joined together. There's this real kind of mashing and weaving together of these things that we might live for the kingdom that we're called to, for those who have responded to the things of God. See, Daniel's response in the presence of an earthly king was filled with, with wisdom and faith, but his response in the presence of his heavenly king was prayer and praise. That's an example for us. Thoughts and prayers being offered up in the midst of difficult situation isn't a retreat, it's not a cop-out, it's not a powerless response, it's the first thing we should be doing. Daniel and his friends, verse 17 says, get you some friends like Daniel had. He went to them and said what? Let's beg for the mercy of God. And what does God do in response? His merciful response is revelation. His merciful response is revelation. His friends went with him to God in prayer. We need friends like Daniel had that will go to God in prayer with us and for us. Verse 18 tells us that they were seeking mercies from the God of heaven. What a wonderful way to pray with others and seeking mercy. If you're not sure how to pray, start like that. Start by telling somebody else what you're praying for and start by saying, God, show and reveal your mercy in the midst of this circumstance. Notice Daniel's heart, even for others, beyond himself, beyond his three friends. He is a part of a collective wisdom that surrounds the king. It's the king's court. It's where it is that, that Nebuchadnezzar is going to turn to try to hear from a, a lot of different perspectives to make a decision for how things are going to go forward for the kingdom of Babylon. But Daniel kind of reveals his heart for others because he includes in his crying out for the mercy of God the lost people of Babylon. He includes them. This wasn't just a prayer for self-preservation. It was prayer for rescue in an impossible situation. So don't lose what we're being told in verse 19. In the midst of what I think that we would all say would be the consternations of life, things that should keep us up in the night, verse 19, Daniel and his friends prayed, they went to heaven for their answers, and then they went to bed. They went to bed. Daniel did what the king couldn't do. He rested. Nebuchadnezzar isn't resting. It's bothering him. 
It's stirring him up. He's, he's noticing there's something that's happening here that I can't get past. It almost seems as if Nebuchadnezzar is having this recurring dream, and he's not sure, is this a dream or is this a nightmare? And it's bothering him the fact that he can't answer that question. And he wants to know that the answer and the interpretation that he's getting is the right one. It's bothering him so much. But what does Daniel do? He casts himself on the mercies of God, and he rests in God's provision of mercy. He experiences what the king couldn't do. He put the matter in the hands of the heavenly king. And then he did what the earthly king couldn't do. He rested on the one to whom he just prayed. In the midst of that rest, there was revelation waiting. In the midst of that rest, there was revelation waiting. It seems like a good place. We're going to talk about it a little bit more at the end of the service, but Tomorrow begins a week of prayer and fasting for us as a church. And I wonder for us, if that's not part of the theme that God wants to kind of speak to all of us collectively as a church. I don't know about you. I could use some rest. I've never met somebody that's just like, you know, Chris, I just have this abundance of rest right now. I'm really looking for something to do. You know, everything's just taken care of. No. Those aren't the conversations I'm having with folks. If that's you, write a book and tell us how to do that. <laughs> Actually, God's already provided that for us, hasn't he? Cast ourselves on the mercy of God in our prayer and in our praise because it's delight to God. It's something that, that is a delight to him. So prayer, going to God in prayer is always a good first response. But praise for God's goodness is also part of the right response. Sinclair Ferguson says this, The test of our spirituality does not lie in the fervency of our prayers in times of crisis, but in the wholeheartedness of our worship when God acts in grace. Relief unaccompanied by worship is never an adequate response to the mercies of God. Indulge me for a moment as I put this into my own words. Just a little bit. What it is that we're learning from this passage. Praise is never to be about the outcome of our circumstances. Praise is about the object of our worship. Who is the object of our praise? It's God himself. The one who laid down his life to redeem us through Jesus Christ. The one who created us on purpose for a purpose. The one who strengthens us for the mission ahead. Who gives us gifts for our part to play. And the one who empowers us by his Holy Spirit. He is the object of our praise. But let me ask you this today. Has your praise been more about outcomes than the object? And if the answer is outcome, allow me to invite you to shift your focus from the outcomes that only give us cause to praise here on earth. And let me invite you to direct your praise to God who has secured our eternal outcome 
through Jesus Christ. Let's pick back up in our passage in verse 24. And we're going to read through a big section here. We're going to go all the way through verse 45. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts in your mind. You saw, O king, in verse 31, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and exceeding of brightness, stood before you and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings. Notice the case there. To whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. And into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens. Making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there will be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. 
In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw the stone that was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. This dream is certain, and its interpretation, sure. I think this interpretation is bold. He's telling a king who must have been flattered at the initial part of the interpretation that he is the gleaming, shining head of gold. And in the midst of this, we realize that the revelation of mysteries point to the power of God and His kingdom. The superiority of Daniel's God over the pagan deities is evident not only in the revelation of the dream, but also in the revelation that Daniel's God will be the final and eternal victor over successive kingdoms of humanity. Daniel's actually speaking, and speaking of king of kings and all of these lowercase g gods, he's speaking to something that was happening in, in Babylon at that time. It's called polytheism. It basically means if you need a god for something, we will make one for you. That's my rough interpretation. I doubt that's the definition you would see if you Google it. But polytheism, lots of little gods. What are they trying to do? They're trying to make up where the world doesn't make sense. They're trying to help interpret the things of the world. And yet we have a guide as those who believe in Jesus Christ and His Word that helps us to understand. What is it that it helps us understand? Well, it helps us understand in verses 24 through 30 as God reveals to Daniel that only the God of heaven knows all things, including the most powerful man's on earth dreams in the night. He knows all things. The content of the dream are finally revealed, and it's not coming from human knowledge. Nebuchadnezzar all of a sudden realizes his disconcerting dreams are divinely inspired. There is a bigger God speaking to him in the night. There is someone greater than him speaking to him in the night. And his dreams reveal a God who is absolutely sovereign in what he knows. In theological terms, we call this his omniscience. And he is sovereign in what he will do, what he is strong enough to do. We call that his omnipotence. And so God is, is the one who can reveal things, and He is the one who has all of the knowledge and all of the power to bring those things to pass. He knows the future. He has a plan for the future, and He's going to accomplish that plan for the future. Many of us know this feeling. We, we love to make plans for the future, and we would love to have the strength to ensure that they happen that way. But they don't. It doesn't work that way in God's kingdom. When he knows the future, he accomplishes it by his strength as well. And we can rest in that today. The God of Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, where the Bible says, Remember what happened long ago, for I am God and there is no other. 
I am God and no one is like me. I declare from the end, I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place and I will do all my will. If we make this practical and applicable to us today, David Jeremiah in his book, The Agents of Babylon, says this, you may not know what the future holds, but you know who holds the future. Since the whole world is in in God's hands, your world is in God's hands. So only the God of heaven knows all things. And only the God of heaven can do all things. We see this in verses 31 through 45. Now, I've talked about this before. I, I kind of use the phrase on occasion, felt board theology, and I just thought, you know, maybe we should stop talking about it. Why don't, why don't we bring the felt board theology into a bit of a digital age so we have an image, uh, a kind of a rendering by an artist of what the statue might have looked like? That is terrifying, isn't it? Sweet dreams, everybody. God reveals the content of the dreams. You think you'd come up with an image like this on your own? I wouldn't. He revealed the content of the dreams, and He is the one who provided the interpretation of the dreams. So, I mean, it's one thing to have this image in your mind. It's another to understand what the breakdown of that image actually represents. So, again, kind of layering in our feltboard theology, let's look at what the different sections of this statue represent. What do we have? We have at the top the head of gold that is representative of Babylon. We have Medo-Persia as the chest of arms and silver. Let me just say this. We're going to kind of breeze through this part. There is a lot of debate through the years about what all this means and, and the different things that have happened throughout history. But can I just say this? History affirms what this passage says. If you would like to have a debate over it, that's a lot of fun. But I think that what we're doing then is we're kind of getting like really close to a mirror. The mirror of our own hearts. What I want us to do is kind of step back from that mirror and I want us to see the big picture of what it is that God is doing. But let's look a little bit further into what these different aspects represent. You have Medo-Persia, the chest of arms and silver. You have Greece that is represented in the stomach and thighs of bronze down toward the bottom, the second from the bottom. You have Rome, the legs of iron with feet and of iron and clay and the stone that smashes and becomes a great mountain is Christ and the kingdom of God. I mean, if you want to get into it with like nose and toes theology, have fun with that this afternoon. But let's go big picture. We're not going to dive into the toes that are represented here. That's weird. I'm not into that. <laughs> what do we see? We see a God who is setting up a kingdom that has an eternal reign, and nothing will stand against it. Not the dreams or the aspirations of the most powerful man on earth, not the circumstances that you're facing in your life right now. We can rest in that today. Back to our passage in verse 46. And we'll take this through the end of the passage today. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God 
of gods and Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts. Remember, he promised that at the beginning of the passage. It's either death or gifts. He honors and gives him gifts. And made him ruler over the whole providence of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king. He appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained in the king's court. You know, as we come to the end of this passage today, we realize how it is that God honors those who faithfully serve him. Daniel didn't pull off a neat trick. God did. Daniel was wise and prudent in his response. It's a part of the collective wisdom. It's a part of his faith being applied in the midst of impossible situation. But God is the one who ultimately comes through as the hero in this story, not Daniel. See, the superiority of Daniel's God is shown to the people at this time. How so? Because the most powerful king on earth bows to a servant of the God of God the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. He bows before him. Nebuchadnezzar gives Daniel high honors. He thinks, we have all these other gods, let's throw this one in the mix too. He's done something great. So in so doing, he actually praises God himself. And Daniel is made a ruler as a reward. And his friends come to be a part of the officials as he remains in the king's court. And really what's happening here is it's kind of laying a foundation for the passage next week. And let me just give you a little little tease of what's coming next week. We end this week with Nebuchadnezzar being shaken to the core by a statue he can't explain. And then unexplicably, he creates a giant statue he wants the entire nation to bow down to. Nebuchadnezzar didn't understand the assignment. He didn't get what the Lord was saying to him. And he responds like earthly rulers respond. He responds like people who are only about this moment and this earth responds. And God is going to continue to show himself sovereign, powerful, eternal, mighty, over all of the other gods. That's what's coming next week. But in closing today, I want us, I want us to kind of use our imaginations a little bit here. I want us to gain an understanding of something, of the kingdom of God and the call of His church in that kingdom. Daniel is not the first to speak of a stone in the Old Testament. Psalm 118 speaks of a stone. But Daniel is the last to speak of a stone in the Old Testament. And then there's a lot of quiet. Centuries of silence. Until Jesus arrives and says, the kingdom of God is here as John the Baptist is preparing to baptize him. 
crack through the silence. The kingdom of God, the stone we've been hearing about, Jesus is claiming and proclaiming its arrival in him being on the scene. In Luke chapter 20, verses 17 and 18, it says this. In an interaction with Jewish leaders, we're told that Jesus looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Here Jesus is quoting Psalm 118. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Sounds familiar to Daniel's interpretation of the dream and the dream that Nebuchadnezzar is having, and what is it speaking of? It's speaking of those, what is the ultimate end of those who do not cast themselves on the mercies of God. By rejecting the cornerstone of God's new temple, the risen and exalted Christ, these leaders are sealing their own fate, the Jewish leaders are. If they fall and stumble over the cornerstone, they will be smashed to pieces. This is the rock that God is going to build His church on. The prophecy of Isaiah 8.14 is fulfilled where it says, The Lord will be a rock of stumbling both to houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we realize today that the kingdom of God and the church, they are, they are closely related, but they're not the same thing. When we speak of the kingdom of God, it's referring to the reign of God in all of the world. His sovereign and providential reign over the physical earth and linear history. He is at work in the midst of that. So what is the church? If we're about the kingdom of God, what is the church? Well, the church is the, the people of God who live under His loving rule now. In other words, we have recognized that He is not simply our Savior Oh, He is our Savior. But what else is He? He is our Lord and King. He is our Sovereign now. And what does this do? Well, this anticipates the fullness of God's kingdom in our eternal future. So what is the church's mission in the midst of that? This gathering of those who have been called by the name of Jesus, this gathering of those who are a part of the redeemed, this, this collective of those who needed the mercies of God, not looking to themselves. What is our mission? It's to bear witness of the kingdom of God. We are all here to testify of a kingdom with an eternal rule. We do this by proclaiming God's message of salvation through Christ. We do this by demonstrating the power of the gospel through good works so that others might be brought to live under God's reign. So, here's the kingdom that we're welcomed into and invited to participate in. We celebrate that kingdom Every time we gather, every time, this is where I want us to use our imaginations, every time you're with your small group, you are building up the kingdom of God in the hearts of those who come together. Every time you share the good news of the gospel, what's happening? That mountain is growing and filling the whole earth. You are a part of the interpretation of Daniel's dream. 
If you've ever wondered, what is my place in history? Daniel 2 tells you. For those who are in Christ Jesus, you are a part of expanding His kingdom. Every time you whisper His name in prayer, every time you share His name and His good news, every time that you operate in the gifts that He has given, every time that you speak or interact with His church, you are proclaiming a kingdom that is to come that will last for all of eternity. You get to be a part of that. So let's tell others about it. Let's welcome them into this kingdom. Let's let's invite them to receive the gift of grace by faith. Let's be a part of the increase of his kingdom and his reign. See, Jesus is our salvation and he's Lord over this kingdom. So every time someone surrenders their life to the lordship of Jesus, Every time somebody surrenders a new part of their heart that God is working on in that moment, what is happening? That rolling stone is growing as we're told in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It is smashing the kingdoms of this world. The stone, as we're told, is not cut by human hands. It's not your doing. It's not my doing. It's God's doing. It's been His plan of salvation all along. It's been a part of what he wants to do all along. And he is completing the work that only he could do. This kingdom will stand for eternity, crushing the kingdoms of this world. And you and I are invited to be a part of that. And Jesus is the king over God's forever kingdom. And his work on the cross was the act that smashed every other rival kingdom. So how do you and I respond today? We respond by living for Christ and living for the kingdom that he is building through us even today. Let's stand together, church, and let's sing.